Hey folks, before this episode of the Shamley Silhouette commences, um, I want to address that at the end of the episode, I neglected to ask Olivia what she would like to promote. Um, this was a error on my part, but um, I'm going to go ahead and promote something of hers that I read last year and I kept rereading and rereading. Um, it's a book of poetry called A How-To Guide on Surviving Your First Bee Sting. Um, it's a beautifully intimate and open book of poetry uh, that has beautiful illustrations inside. So it's got pictures if you if you need some incentive for that. But more importantly, her words are very moving and genuine. And you owe it to yourself, if you like Olivia and what she has to say in this episode, to check out this book. I'll say the name again, A How-To Guide on Surviving Your First Bee Sting. And now... I'm going to turn you over to the AFI Lifetime Achievement Awards Ceremony in 1979, where a portly gentleman will have some very important words about a very important figure in history. I gave permission to mention by name only four people who have given me the most affection, appreciation, and encouragement, and constant collaboration. The first of the four is a film editor. The second is a scriptwriter. The third is the mother of my daughter, Pat. And the fourth is as fine a cook as ever performed miracles in a domestic kitchen. And their names are Alma Revel. Had the beautiful Miss Revel not accepted a lifetime contract without options as Mrs. Alfred Hitchcock some 53 years ago, Mr. Alfred Hitchcock might be in this room tonight. <laughs> not at this table, but as one of the slower waiters on the floor. <laughs> I share my award as I have my life with her. Now let me share something with those promising young people who have earned their Alfred Hitchcock fellowships. Silhouette. Yet another analysis of the master of suspense, Alfred Hitchcock. I am your host, Zach Eastman, and today we will, be, we will be diverting our attention from old Hitch to discuss his most important collaborator. In the legacy of terror on the silver screen that our subject has brought with his own talent and ingenuity, we are obviously um, going to acknowledge and elaborate on the fact that he did not triumph alone. Like any artist, he had help. As the history books have shown, the many collaborators in Hitch's world are the reason we sit here discussing his very legacy. One such collaborator is indeed the most important. Joining Hitch both in filmmaking and in love in the early days at Famous Players Lasky in Britain and Gainsborough, a woman of remarkable talent and drive was to provide many of the small touches and guidance to Hitch's work that proved invaluable. Whether it was her uncanny ability to spot continuity at a time when the art form was brand new, her sharp eyes and scissors on the individual frames of the suspenseful masterpiece, 
or if it was her ability to provide her take on the tales that her husband would tell with the stroke of the keys of her typewriter. I speak, of course, of Alma Revel. Today, we will be talking about Alma Revel, her contributions to the world of filmmaking and the discussion of women filmmakers throughout history and of today. And we have a special guest to help us do this. Uh, she is an author, a filmmaker, and an artist whose creativity and courage have proven most inspiring to others she surrounds herself with and interacts with. And we are privileged to talk with her about one of cinema's most known but unsung heroes and what can be learned for the future so that creatives never go unsung again. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Olivia Carmel. Hey, I'm so glad to be here. I know that we've, I think, tried to do this many times, but I'm a busy lady, which is good. You you have the best excuse in the world, Olivia. You are actually making things happen in this industry, so I, I applaud you beyond any comprehension that I could possibly conceive of right now. Like, um, we, we're, obviously, we're recording uh, via Skype here because we are still in the middle of COVID-19, um, day unknown under the dome, and... Yeah. We, uh, you are, you, you and the company that you work for are still putting out product, um, whether through digital or virtual theater, um, which is a remarkable feat to say the least. Um, and I, I've had the uh, privilege of watching these films come out before, but I've been recently, uh, watching the ones you've put out such as Tijuana Jackson and you guys are just killing it. And I know that you are a big part of how that happens. So. Uh, oh, well, thank you so much. Yeah, it's it's definitely been a wild ride, I think, for many people through this, these unprecedented times, um, which is like the buzzword of 2020, I feel like. But it, uh, it, it's been exceptionally interesting for the entertainment industry. Um, I've been really impressed by just like the ways that people and in, in the industry have creatively pivoted if you will but um i mean it's kind of not surprising because we are a bunch of creatives <laughs> working together so um there's no end to that like ingenuity but um yeah we i mean just to get into that a little bit we were a really small studio good deed entertainment and our genre label cranked up films and um honestly we've been seeing a lot of success in our releases during um during this pandemic um, you know, not to diminish the pandemic itself, but we, we've just like, we had films set to go and, and we, uh, linked up with Kino Glorber and Alamo Draft House and some partners like that. And we're able to continue releasing our films on like a virtual theatrical platform. Mm -hmm. Um, and then recently uh, some theaters have, um, you know, gone the extra step to make their spaces, uh, you know, more ap applicable, I guess, in this, uh, in this new world we're living in where they can't actually open their doors again, um, you know, limited capacity, um, better ventilation, things of that nature. But um, yeah, we also have been in some, some actual um, in-person theaters as well. Um, and then, you know, sticking to the kind of traditional VOD platforms as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, we've just, we've just found, found our way. And I think a lot of people are doing the same, but, um, it definitely did change things for us, but we tried to write the ship and create a new normal quickly, um, to be able to keep getting content to people. And I'm really glad and grateful that you have been such a great follower of, of, um, the work that we're putting out. 
I really do appreciate like every time you send me a message, it's like, Hey, I just saw one of your films. It, it means a lot. So thank you. The fact that you put out Mick Garris's dream project uh, means you've earned my eternal respect. Cause he had been talking about that on his podcast for so long. I was like, when is this going to happen? Um, but I, now, no. but, and now we've First we, of all, Mick is the nicest person I think I've ever met in this industry. He's so sweet. Um, and just really passionate and obviously well-connected. Um, but he's just one of those people that loves making connections with others. And so it was just a joy to work on his film. And also, I mean, you know, just see how much it, how, how much enthusiasm there was around it. I mean, obviously much to his credit. Um, but I, I love the passion that he put into that project and also, I mean, you know, he, sometimes we have to be really patient in this industry, and he certainly was. And then I'm, I'm really glad we were able to put that out. I mean, I know it's one of our, our big, uh, big success stories, but also just an all-around fun film. Yeah, absolutely. And not only, not only is he one of those people that I imagine is, you know, a, a, amongst the most gracious. You can hear it in his voice on the podcast. But, you know, he. It's funny, the first film of his I ever saw, uh, I guess apart from Hocus Pocus, was Psycho for the Beginning, um, which is the TV, which is the TV film he directed um, uh, for Showtime with Anthony Perkins reprising his role as Norman. Um, right. So he has this tangent, tangential connection to Hitchcock that like, you know, that made me want to go like, well, what else has this guy done? And then you watch Sleepwalkers, The Stand, and you're like, Jesus, man, this guy's been all over the place. Um, and yeah, really and, yeah. I mean, I think, I think people don't even realize like how entrenched in the industry and in the genre that Mick Garris really is. Um, mm. I think, I mean, speaking of some unsung heroes, like, yes, he's a man, but he, he's all over the place. He's supported so many people in this industry and, um, been a mentor to so many. And like I said, been a connector of so many that, um, that he, I don't think he even would take full credit for, but like, he's definitely, I think one of those people that behind the scenes is doing, doing a lot of work within this industry. He is a cinema secret agent, my friends. That's what he is. He's, he's getting, he is. He's getting, I like that. getting things done all over the place in the sleuthiest style imaginable. Um, but, but this is unfortunately not the Mickey Garris, uh, appreciation hour, although that's a, that's that's an idea <laughs> down the line. Um, we are here to talk about Alma Revel. Um, now, Olivia, when I, when I messaged you uh, to come on the show, the key thing was, is that uh, a lot of where this started from uh, was one, we knew we're, I knew I was going to talk about Alma Revel on the show in a way that wasn't just diminishing her to the sidelines, but also, in the last year, there had been the rise of a documentary called um, uh, Be Natural, The Untold Story of Alice Guy Blachey, which I, I'm, if I'm recalling correctly, it stemmed initially from an article that um, either you shared or somebody shared where they talked about Alice Guy Blachey's contributions. And she's a figure that I had heard about initially um, in like small details in film history books. But then the documentary that came out by Pamela Green basically exposed how her name was kind of trampled on um, in history and in favor of the narrative of men in the industry. And so there's there's two questions I'm going to ask you on top. Um, the first for, the first question is, how did you get into Hitchcock? Um, obviously, you're a filmmaker, you're a writer. There had to be um, there, there. What's your entry point for the world of Hitchcock and your uh, knowledge of him? 
Yeah, well, long before I ever had any idea that I was going to enter this industry, um, I, I was actually a writer, as you kind of noted in your introduction. Thank you. Um, yeah, no, I, I've been writing since I was a kid. My, my mom is very, um, very creative, very artistic, and she really nourished that, uh, nurtured that in me from a young age. And she's also like a really big film buff. Like, I don't think she even realizes how much of like a film buff she is, but she really is. Um, she introduced me to a lot of the classics and, she's a big Hitchcock fan herself. So, I mean, some of like the first movies I remember watching are like Psycho and Vertigo and, you know, like the Hitchcock, the well-known Hitchcock classics. But I just, I just remember watching movies like that. I mean, my mom's favorite movie is Gone with the Wind and like I'm named after Olivia de Havilland. And so <laughs> there's just all those classics. The night I was born, my dad stayed up until the wee hours of the morning watching The Good, The Bad, The Ugly. like those movies are kind of like some of the, the early movies that I remember. So um, that's, I don't even remember when I first got introduced to Hitchcock. It's just kind of always been part of my story, I guess you could say. <laughs> that's amazing. And it, it should be noted if you're named after Olivia de Havilland, I'm, I, obviously you're aware that she unfortunately uh, left our realm at the age of 104 um, but, uh, but, but, quite, but that's uh, incredible. Yeah, quite a like, quite a legendary figure to be named after. Um, there was a we talked about it on the last Real Nerds, but that she her fight with Jack Warner to get her contract um, situation figured out and uh, uh, is one of those pioneering revolutionary uh, acts of defiance that basically broke down the contract system within old Hollywood. It's it's so there, there's a quite a legacy behind the name that you are um, given. So it's it's it should not go unappreciated by any stretch. Um, oh no, it does not go unappreciated. And you know that I love me a sassy lady, so <laughs> I <laughs> I am all here for uh, the Olivia de Havillands of the past, present, and future. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and um, now that leads me into the second question, though. So you've had Hitchcock kind of ingrained in you from a young age. So what was the first um, awareness you had, if at all, of Alma Revel or Mrs. Hitchcock um, to many um, prior to being asked to be on the show? Right. So, I mean, I'd known about her. I'm going to be honest. And, and I almost in you asking this and asking me to recognize when she kind of came to the forefront of my knowledge, I'm realizing kind of in real time that it was really in my like 20s that I, I learned about her, which is crazy because, you know, I, I grew up, I was a kid watching Hitchcock and, you know, Hitchcock is really like, I mean, he's, he's a household name and whether you're a film person or not. And so to realize that someone who on a personal level was so important to him, but also on a career professional level was so important to him and his work making the mark that it did to know that I didn't actually realize about her until my twenties is like, I'm, I'm almost ashamed. Mm -hmm. um, but, but I have to be honest, like, I, I mean, especially as a woman myself um, and somebody who like, I would consider myself a feminist. Um, like it's, I'm disappointed in myself that it took me that long, but I think before you and I were, um, you know, recording the show, we kind of talked about the fact that even 
in film schools or in film studies courses, she's not really mentioned that much. Mm -hmm. And there's also not, I mean, I, I think, and I haven't, full disclosure, I haven't read the biography, but from what I know and have been told, the biography by their um, daughter is the one that is the most in-depth about her. Yeah. And, you know, that that doesn't, that's not surprising. She loved her mom. She loved her parents. But, you know, and she has the most intimate details. But even that is unfortunate to me, that it took someone that close to her to acknowledge her in in such a big way. And, and also, I mean, Hitchcock himself really tried to, you know, beat the drum behind behind her impact. Yep. But yeah, no, no one really talks about her. And that's, I think, I'm glad that you asked me to do this podcast because more people need to know about her. Yeah, not only, and you're and you're right. Not only was, um, and the book that Pat Hitchcock wrote, like it has been. Dis dismissed a bit as just anecdotal but the bottom line is is that anything we can get about alma revel is a glory at this point um our final guest on the on the series yeah our, our final guest on the series at large adam roche um his hitchcock podcast delves a lot into alma revel and trying to create a reality for her that hasn't existed in the history books but there is a um th there is a the appreciation that hitchcock had for her is endless um, amongst things like she he wrote an article for McCall's in 1956 called The Woman Who Knows Too, Knows Too Much, which basically was like a love letter to Alma to the public. And the the amount of love that she that he had for her and and trust and frankly, like, you know, like it, there was a codependency within that. And I think that it's safe to say that Hitchcock's film career begins and ends as long as Alma's participating in it. And that's a key. Oh, it's a, absolutely. It's, and it's a key thing about Hitchcock, especially when you get towards the end. Um, but we're not going to, you know, start at the end and then Tarantino this, we're going to go from the beginning um, and basically kind of talk a little bit about her life. And within that, we're going to also talk about a couple of films that uh, she was contributing. She contributed heavily to, that have been recognized as of late within the last decade. Um, but it should be noted up front that nearly every documentary or behind-the-scenes featurette that you've seen on the DVDs released by Universal uh, give Alma her proper due through interviews with the creatives that were behind things, whether it was Stefano and Psycho or um, uh, Pat Hitchcock herself being the curator of the legacy of the Hitchcock name. That her name never went unmentioned once in any behind the scenes featurette you ever watch on those films. And it's important to start off with the quote that Charles Champlin of the LA Times had in 1982 um, for her obituary uh, that the, for the Hitchcock touch had four hands and two of them were Alma's. And within that, we want to learn now how Alma Revel uh, got into, <laughs> uh, into existence and how she basically teams up with Hitchcock and she was um so we start off in 1899 on August 14th a day after Hitchcock uh she was born in Nottingham Nottinghamshire um her parents move her to London when she's young and she's entranced by the films that her mother takes her to see and she basically yeah, that's common. yeah I love that yep and and she had a lot of 
um, she had a lot of adoration for like the make the process of it. Um, according to Secret History of Hollywood and the way he um, presents it, the um, she would ride her bike and watch the studios um, out the London Film Studios in Twickenham, and um, uh, watched everybody going about their business. And a friend of Alma's father worked as an editor at the studios, and in, in an interesting turn of like time-wise events unlike most people uh, most parents of the era who would have probably driven their daughter towards you know domesticity exclusively they encouraged her dream and through that connection with Alma's father um she got a job with the editing team at Twickenham's uh London Film Studios um and uh basically starts off as a tea girl um, which, by the way, very, very British to start off as a tea girl. Um, oh, and, British. Yeah. I, I love that. Yeah. The, Amer- the American equivalent is the water boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but she works through that. She she's she's she stops serving tea at a certain point and works up to become a continuity supervisor on set. And this is a new art form at the time. So continuity around the time of 1914, 1915 is not really a. Uh, a, a, a utilized concept on set um, and, and most certainly in Britain, which is light years behind compared to American and other European countries in their film industries. And she found that she had a knack for it. And basically working through that, uh, her, the neighbor that got her the job um, then moved over to flame, famous players, Lasky studios um, in Islington. And she joined him there where she became an editor and doing and doing continuity as well, and in Monk's this time, uh, a partly young man, you know, was um, walking across the street one day and uh, bumped into her, and and he didn't know what to say because she was just very beautiful, and I just didn't know what to fucking say, um, and so they they had met um like once, and then they kind of darted away because Hitchcock felt that because he was only a title card designer at the time for famous players Lasky that his station was not high enough to even remotely broach a conversation with Alma, um, which is interesting because which I, I love that. Yeah. It, it's interesting. She was like this powerful woman. Yeah. She had, she had an immense amount of uh, control of her own destiny. And it, when we think about it today from the, from the context of that, I mean like now status and class division withstanding, you know, like, you know, th- there's, it doesn't necessarily work that way today, but it is interesting to note that like he recognized her control of her situation and her power. And it would explain why he had worshiped her and adored her um, as the years went on as the sound person to give advice, because when she's already experienced from the age of 16 onward, he's still learning about this industry. Like the title cards that he was developing were just like, that's his first real entry point into it. Um, And like, and this would be a good question for you, Olivia, in terms of like, I, I won't speak into specifics necessarily, but like when you're looking at a story of this, this girl working her way up through the ranks at this, at these early, early studios, um, does it, does it seem uncharacteristic to you to see something like like Alma's journey at that point like uncommon compared to any other story that you've heard um, or what even could have inspired you to get into film initially? Oh yeah, I mean 
this has been a, a hot topic within the industry for sure, especially in, in recent years. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's pretty widely known still that there's a huge gender gap within Hollywood um, today. And I think, I mean, within my studio itself, um, I actually am really fortunate to work at a, at a small indie studio that has women as leaders. Um, it was a really big, um, a really big factor for me actually in, in applying for and accepting the job there is because the people at the helm of this studio of Good Deed Entertainment and Cranked Up Films are, are women and really strong, determined, hardworking women. Um, and so I, in my day-to-day -day work, I have really amazing and inspiring, like, leaders to look up to um, and to learn from. So for me, it's, I feel like I'm almost in this, like, happy little pocket of the industry because, you know, we often talk about, like, their, their experiences coming up in the industry. Um, they were both assistants. Um, they started out as assistants and they worked their way up. They certainly worked their way up, but I mean, it is, it, it's, it's, it's definitely a, a different, I think, experience from, from what we're even like women are even told. And, and I think what's interesting about Alma's career specifically is that, um, and I know you haven't gotten to this part yet, but she was highlighted um, early on as kind of this like up and coming female in the industry who who was kind of set up for to be like a, a director. Mm -hmm. And she she didn't go that path and we can get into that. You know, I'm sure you want to get into that later, but but like she was kind of being highlighted in like articles and within the industry is like, she's going to, she's going to be a director. Yeah, um, and you know, that, that stuff doesn't happen in the same, in the same way today. Like it does, but it's, it's exceptionally rare. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of, I mean, insider like strings and stuff being pulled um, that make that, that kind of happen. But I mean, there's incredible programs today that are trying to kind of flip the script on the industry um, the, like, actually, Alma Harrell's, um, oh my gosh, I can't think of her program right now. What is it? Um, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. She's the director of Honey Boy. What is it? Free the Work. Yeah, that's her, it. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah. Right. I, I don't know why it's on my mind right now, but, but her program, um, Free the Work is not only for women, it's also for just other underrepresented voices because as we know there's basically anyone who's not a white man <laughs> is um is an underrepresented voice um in, in Hollywood and in, in the US and world. But um but like there there are programs trying to 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 switch that narrative. Um but it is interesting and fascinating to me that Alma and and actually a lot of women in this time period were kind of women were sort of I think it was like the golden era of women in Hollywood almost in like the 1920s because so mm -hmm. many of like the top earners and the most sought after 
leaders in the industry were women and Alma was was one of those and I, I just it's so inspiring to to hear that but also you know it's a little frustrating because I don't think today I mean we have fantastic leaders but it, it takes a lot of um grit and a lot of almost luck too to to get there so right right that was a bit of a tangent but but yeah no it, but it's important to, to it's important to spell that out because I don't I don't know um, within the listenership of the show how many are you know familiar with the fact that during the 1920s as you as you stated you know women were powerhouses and leaders in the industry um, and there's a documentary um, a, a long documentary by Mark Cousins called um, the a, a story of cinema and Odyssey and at a certain point early on in the documentary there's there's frank interviews with um people in the industry but also historians who point out that they were top earners as directors screenwriters editors um editors is where we mainly know of, of them if anything um in terms of the um history that is given to us and uh there's a there's an allusion to the fact that the moment that men uh or that 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 film is recognized as a legitimate business is when the power structure starts to shift and men start taking over a lot more of the power and it and it's right. and it's important to understand that film prior to the major studios really really coming up um the film was it was a novelty-ish thing like it hadn't become an art form um, and, you know, and arguably, yes, D.W. Griffith's movie, you know, made it an art form. Blech. But the um, the the important thing within that, though, is, is that the moment that it becomes an art form and a lucrative business beyond just these little Nickelodeons and short films and one reelers and programmers, they the power structure starts to shift in favor of men. And you start see screenwriters, um, uh, women screenwriters disappearing rather quickly. You certainly see directors disappearing quickly. Um, editors um, and script girls are mainly the key things you see survive, as well as actresses. But actresses is a given because they're on the camera uh, or in front of the camera. Um, and it's fun. It's important that you bring up the fact that you know we've got articles about Elma being written. Uh, a great one that can be found. Um, on the internet is Alma in Wonderland from a, uh, a an article, a, a periodical called The Picture Goer, where they talk about how she like the, the the top of the article is very interesting. It says an interesting article proving that a woman's place is not always in the home. And I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> uh, it's 1925. I know that. Um, yeah, but, I was like, that was very much of the time. Yeah, very much so. And it's and it's very much something that. You know, when you read the article, you do you do see flat out like they are covering her journey through filmmaking. And it is noted that there was a path for her as a director. Now, where it takes a turn is when she um, is found without a job after pa famous players Lasky collapses and is then turned into Gainsborough. And essentially Hitchcock that 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 dorky boy with the with the title card suddenly found himself an assist as an assistant director on a film called woman to woman and um she he knew to call her up to be like do you want to be a cutter on this film an editor um and that's how they start working together is on a film where he's an assistant director and he's basically allocating those talents on this film woman to woman and 
And Which I do love that aspect because I feel like there's there's two things there. There's his admiration for her that, you know, clearly started early on when he bumped into her when they were much younger. Mm-hmm. And he realized, recognized that she had a lot of, you know, uh, experience and stature within the industry and then to get in this position where he can call upon her I mean that is so that's just how the industry still works today which like I I just love that it's all about connections and and who you want to work with and who you admire and who has a special specialized skill that you know you could you could learn from or benefit from and um, I love that he recognized that and right away called her and and then and then within that, prior to um even that assisted call, um, she is also working in other capacities and such. So when she gets this call, this this ends up becoming a big opportunity for her specifically because of the fact that she's breaking into an art form that she's going to be very, very famous for down the line. Um the which is editing like that was amongst the things that she is known for editing is something that everybody knows about Alma Revel, um, if, if, if they know about her. Um, and frankly, like the, the, the formation of that bond, it's not to say that Hitchcock is solely responsible for this happening. I think it would have happened for her either way. What's interesting is, is that she, her, her teaming up with Hitchcock ensures that she is remembered to an extent because of what Hitchcock becomes that's unfortunate to a lot of degrees, um, but it's also interesting on in how it plays a part down the line in Hitchcock's career, but most certainly her life. Um, yeah. And within that, you know, uh, and prior to The Lodger, um, which is the definitive Hitchcock film uh, that sets the standard for what he's going to do down the line by scaring the shit out of people. Um, the He... Um, there was an article from um, uh, the motion picture studio in 1923 where she was one of the people stepping up and saying that, uh, Hey, editing's not just um, a job. It's an art form. And the quote that uh, there's a, there's a quote within the uh, article that I found through Columbia's website on um, uh, Columbia university's website, where they're talking about the women pioneers filmmaker project. And she argues that editing was not merely a mechanical part of the filmmaking process, but was in fact art with a capital A. Capital A. I know. I love that quote too from her. Yep. And it's, and she, so she's clearly, not only is she active in the industry, she's advocating, not even, like, it's funny. She's not even advocating for women's positions because at this point it's not, you know, an an issue. It's just men and women working together to make these movies happen. Right. And then she's basically saying, like, no, 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 no. This thing that you think happens just with scissors is actually an art that uh, needs to be tended to and cared to. Um, You don't get a Walter Murch without having a Margaret Booth around first. And then certainly you don't have uh, the complicated editings of many of your favorite films without recognizing first and foremost that it is an art. Um, You know, hey, uh, for example, you like a Transformers movie that doesn't happen without editing, which is, you know, arguably a good or bad thing. But (laughs) um, uh, the but the bottom line is is that she's advocating for these things early on. And as their 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 partnership blooms, the full blossoming of it is the lodger where she is an assistant director on the film. Uh, assisting in every angle of the production as noted throughout the course of history and 
funny enough, she makes a cameo in the film as a woman listening to the wireless in the film. Um, um, <laughs> isn't this also one where she they say that she might have directed an entire scene as well? Yes. Now I haven't been able to find out which scene they would have she would have directed. Um, but I what, know. What, I keep seeing that, and I'm like, which one? I want to know. Here's the problem with this, and this is a problem with the history of women in film in general that I've been noticing is is that the record, you know, the records, the records, the records, yep, the, yep. the records um, um, not. I mean the. The retrospective records are written by men, one. But two, the big thing is is that there's a lot of, you know, there's not a lot of record keeping with any film of this era um, in terms of who did exactly what. Um, so it would have been hard even if the f history books favored um, favored women to begin with because it is hard to just keep in touch with these records of, like, who did what each day. Like, it's not like every call sheet's being saved, unfortunately. Um, that would be great, though. I'd love that. Um, but the the bottom line is that I would love to know which one she directed, and it wouldn't surprise me if she had directed it. So, like, it, this isn't even speculation. Like, she was known to get hands-on with Hitchcock's films. It doesn't surprise me that this story is out there because I believe it. <laughs> you know, like... Right, right. Well, it, and I think, I honestly think that it's unfortunate that there's there is so little record-keeping because... I mean, I think even of what we do know, um, I'm sure she actually had a hand in, in many more things that just go unknown to this day because no one kept records. And also, I have a feeling, I mean, obviously, I don't know her. And there's little, little, um, you know, to to learn about her even today. But it do, she does strike me as someone who doesn't mind kind of being kind of taking um you know a step back for mm -hmm. others to take the lime you know the limelight because she strikes me as someone based on how her career went um and what we do know of it as someone who's like actually just passion for the art form as a whole mm -hmm. and a lot of times people who are just that passionate don't don't really care who gets the credit don't really care who gets the fanfare they just love and relish being a part of making something making this art and right. it's the process to them that is is the joy rather than you know the the fanfare and, and she strikes me as someone who's who's like that yeah and it's actually it's you'd be absolutely correct because this is part of how we get um, not just the legacy of Alma Revel, but also the reason why she goes under disgust. Um, not, not to, not to the detriment of Hitchcock's trying. Um, it's mainly that, you know, she takes that sidestep at a certain point. And, uh, it, from everything I've read, it's, it seems that a lot of it comes from her becoming a mother when she gives birth to Patricia. Um, but, um, at the time that she was pregnant with her, she did write the script for a film that wasn't directed by Hitchcock called The Constant Nymph, uh, which is an adaptation of a well-known story. And she was also working on the screenplays for other projects, not the least of which was The Firstborn, which was developed also by David Manners, who was also a Hitchcock collaborator at a certain point. And so... so the, I mean, so, I get the sense this woman never stopped working, which, no. again, alludes to the fact that she's just passionate about 
filmmaking. And she, and not only that, I will, I will find that we were speaking of the fact that she had a cameo in the movie. She was actually, she was actually a star in a movie <laughs> um, called The Life Story of David Lloyd George. Um, oh, we always forget that she actually, like, did some acting. She dappled. Yeah, exactly. Well, and and it's and it goes back to that point of the period where this industry's new. Any anybody could have done anything, Olivia. We we could have done whatever we wanted. We could have all, you know, I could have been Clark Gable. You have no idea. Um, but I believe but, it, man. But especially she, with these voice, uh, this this voice uh, characters you're doing. <laughs> it, it, it's uh, it believe me, this is the worst possible Hitchcock impression because it sounds like Patrick Stewart. Um, but. <laughs> So it's Patrick Stewart playing Hitchcock. Is that that's the origin point of that, ladies and gentlemen, that you've been hearing for twenty twenty two episodes up to this point? Um, but the film, I, the film, enjoy uh, it, I appreciate it. The, the 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 one I like doing the most is Jimmy Stewart because he's just he, he's kind of an asshole. But <laughs> um, but the um, the film that she did, that acted in that we have a record of uh, it was a. Uh, it was. It's thought to be the first feature-length biopic of a contemporary living politician, <laughs> um, uh, which was David Lloyd George, and she's in the movie with an Ernest Thesinger, who ended up working on a little movie called The Bride of Frankenstein as Doctor Pretorius. So she not only yes, got, little movie. She not only she not only co-starred with Ernest Thesinger in a movie. Um, she she got to meet Doctor Pretorius before anybody else knew who Doctor Pretorius was. <laughs> I mean, the more we dig into to what she's doing, I, you know, I've I've read a lot of the stuff here and there. I've learned this about her through the years, but like now, now us talking about it in more like a succinct um, timeline, I'm just like, man, if I could go back in time and choose somebody's life to step into, I, I think I might choose hers. She had a cool life story. Yeah, and she and and it doesn't really stop there. Um, you know, amongst the exciting things, I will point this out as the anecdote of the of the show, because um, we're because talking about their personal lives is you know not the focus of the show specifically. But I will point out that when they were location scouting prior to the lodger um, for another film where he was still an assistant director, they uh, location scout for Germany. They got on a boat, and that's when Hitch decided, I'm going to ask this woman to marry me. Uh, this boat was rocking back and forth and causing seasickness all across the board. When he popped the question, it is reported that she burped in his face <laughs> because she and accepted the proposal but burped in his face right afterwards because she, her mind was not so much on the proposal uh, and more so on, I'm going to vomit. <laughs> so... <laughs> Those are two interesting feelings to collide at one moment. Yeah, it, it's 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 a very interesting start to a to a long-lasting partnership and marriage. Um but they alas she they work on the lodger. The lodger's a huge success. This cements Hitchcock as a big director and it really is the turning point for Alma to a certain extent starting to solely work with Hitchcock for the most part. She does go off and uh, go on and off onto different projects but when they when he blows up and gets big th this is where we start to see the turn where Alma's becoming much more involved on the behind the scenes front uh of these films um and the the not everything is credited is the thing and now part of that stems from the fact that she worked as an advisor throughout all the films but if but whether or not she got credit is primarily dedicated to like if she attached herself to that project. So amongst the ones that she 
is very well known for in terms of like full on collaboration where she helped develop the story with Hitchcock for the ring, which is his boxing movie. Um, and she worked on the scenarios for films like Juno and the Paycock and the skin game. But the big one that we, we can accredit her to in the terms of the birth of a movement in film she was the screenwriter, the sole credited screenwriter for the scenario for a movie called Murder from 1930. Um, this is the second sound film that Hitchcock makes. Um, and what's interesting when you watch Murder um, is that she it's almost like she kind of basically develops um, for the for the on screen purposes um, in, in terms of cinema. One of the first um, charismatic detectives <laughs> Because yes. she, because the entire movie is about an actor who solves a mystery. <laughs> it, I mean, I do love like the premise of this of the movie, um, and and the way that they executed it. But it, I mean, first of all, I'm just gonna admit that my guilty pleasure shows are pretty much all having to do with like charismatic detectives. Yeah. So I mean that they got me right there. But um. But yeah, I mean, I love the fact that he's also this actor and that he takes this case upon himself. And the whole thing is just really well acted and really, um, really interesting. It's yeah. just captivating at every turn. And it's and it's a film that um, is one of the many films that had to get a proper restoration from the BFI. Even if you want Kino Lorber, who, who you've been working with. Um, puts out a lot of Hitchcock's films on their um, physical media, which I am eternally grateful for because they've been, they've been working hard at making sure that a lot of the films that haven't been surviving that well have gotten a place on physical media that isn't a bootleg. Right. Uh, they're early. They do a, they did a collection recently called the British years where amongst them, a lot of the silent films that they did. Um, but murder is one of the ones that they acquired along with blackmail, which is the first Hitchcock sound film. And, What's interesting is that within this, and I don't, we, I can't find any record of who developed this initially. I think more than likely this might have been Hitch, but that doesn't mean that Elma doesn't have a contributing factor to it. Is that this is a film where, for the first time on screen, that can be recorded, uh, where inner inner monologues are presented on screen, where you have an actor talking um, in the ether while they're not speaking um, on film. So that's interesting to note that inner monologue kind of gets developed with a with a movie she's writing. Right. Um, it's also really interesting how they filmed it. Mm -hmm. Did you read about that? Yeah, I I read a little bit about it, but you but I want you to touch on it because I I think this is it's pretty fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, I can't Okay, I'm going to admit that I don't I read this a long time ago, so I might get this wrong, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. it was all in real time, right? It's like they they recorded, so he was acting out the scene, and then didn't they play the audio? Yes, they did. Yeah, yeah. I was like, that is so interesting. But yeah, they were playing the audio that he'd already recorded yep. and, while and, he was acting the scene out. Yeah, and it and it reportedly kind of threw people off a little bit. <laughs> which, cause it, yeah, cause it, it was all new. It was all a new thing, and it, it kind of had to be weird. I mean, like you said, it was also a very early film with sound and then you're also doing this really new concept and yeah that had to be really 
Yeah, it had to be really strange to kind of experience. Yeah, and it's coming at the and it's coming at the point. What's interesting about it and how it comes out is that it's in 1930. This is only a year after um, Jolson got down on one knee and blew everybody's minds with uh, the jazz singer, and so sound develops quite quickly, uh, especially in America. But in, in Britain, it seems like it got streamlined pretty quickly for them. Um, and this is an industry of film that has gone unrecognized for the most part until the lodger comes out in 1927. So three years after Hitchcock and revel establish what British cinema is, they then have to change the game again. So that's interesting how, how quick they are to adapt to things. Now, if you talk to Hitchcock, he would argue that he would rather not be working with sound entirely because he believes in pure cinema, which is the, notion of showing the telling the story primarily through pictures but through him and uh him and revel working together on these early early sound films it's clear that they establish how much pure cinema they can get away with in the sound films while still having the dialogue that everybody's fascinated with because up to this point there's no sound coming out of your pictures it's only coming out of your radio (laughs) no right yeah and and within that she continues to work on things, none of the least of which is actually the same scenario for the movie Mary, which is the German remake of Murder that Hitchcock directed. So he not only directed the, the movie Murder, but he also did the German version, too. Um, and apparently they had to change a lot of things. Like There was an assist, insistence to change a lot of things about Mary, but he managed to keep most things the same. And so they go through the British period. Um, working together on various projects. She's she's consulting on all of them, but amongst the ones that she works on directly um, are number 17, um, the, uh, the Waltzes from Vienna. Um, and then there's kind of a stopping point because then they go over to America. I got, I got to work with a, with a fucking lunatic named David Osasnik. Um, and the... Uh, from there, Hitchcock is loaned out to other studios um, with the uh, basically like the, the fact was is that when you rented out your your talent to other studios, um, the person who owned the contract on that would make money. So Selznick made a lot of money by renting Hitchcock out. Um, but in the in the process, she wrote the screenplays for several several films um through the 40s um but the but the key ones that she's attributed to are suspicion with cary grant uh shadow of a doubt which is the favorite her favorite movie that she worked on with her husband and consequently that's also hitchcock's favorite film and it stands to reason that this is shadow of a doubt is a film where it seemed like all the wheels were working in sync and nothing really went wrong and I think that they really enjoyed their time That's at Santa Rosa. Lame. Yeah, it's that it's, is so rare. <laughs> yeah, it's well, it's like, and I mean, obviously, there's day to day things that we're unaware of, but they were in. Hitchcock didn't like going on location. He's like, I don't, I don't like going outside. It's fucking gross out there. Uh, Where you masked people? But um, the the key thing on it is that he liked Santa Rosa. She liked Santa Rosa. They just got along with it, and she loved the premise. Which she wrote the screenplay with Thornton Wilder, um, the writer of Our Town, um, and she loved the concept of this. Have you have you seen Shadow of a Doubt, Olivia? I have not, admittedly, but oh, now okay. I'm going to so, watch it immediately because yeah. So I'm not going to spoil it for you, but what, what I will tell you is is that it is a story about what happens when a man, um, a, a dangerous man, invades a small town. So this is kind of the birth of 
outside force coming into quaint uh, American suburbia, um, which then gets elaborated and expanded upon in films like Halloween and then pretty much every slasher film we ever see going forward. Um, so this is kind of a like the, the birthplace. It doesn't have those same elements, but it is a seed point. She then continues to work on the adaptations for films like The Paradine Case uh, and Stage Fright. Um, and Stage Fright would be her last real attributed credit. Um, this is in 1950. Um, she worked on the adaptation for Stage Fright with Whitfield Cook um, and Hitch, basically developing the what the story would become. Uh, but in between that, she also worked on screenplays for other films. The most noteworthy of them uh, is a is a weird, weird diversion for me, but I have to make it because it's in my blood. She did. She was one of many writers on a film called It's in the Bag, uh, which is a film from 1945 starring Fred Allen, who was a noted comic of the era on radio. And he um, he was kind of like the John Stewart of his era, where a lot of his monologues and his humor centered around current events. And that movie has a cameo by Jack Benny. So Alma Revel is not only a badass in the women's history of cinema, she also technically wrote a Jack Benny movie. So she's my fucking hero for the end of time. <laughs> um, and yeah. um, she uh, and that movie's really good too. It's actually the basis, one of the cinematic basis for Mel Brooks's movie, The Twelve Chairs, because it's based off of a Russian novel that was written early on in the um, in the uh, in the uh, establishment establishment of socialism in that country. And basically, it's a story about uh, trying to find the jewels that were sewn into one of 12 chairs <laughs> um, um, in amidst um, uh, the new Soviet Union. Um, so to get back to Revel, though, her her career kind of stops in terms of an IMDb listing, if you want to get. Uh, technical about it and then this is where she primarily becomes a source of advisory and contribution to the films without credit now you already alluded to the fact that she seemed like a woman that was primarily content to remain in the shadows as it were but as we've noted up top hitchcock never stopped making it known that alma was the you know the 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 brain behind a throne to a certain extent because for all the talent Hitchcock has, and it is immeasurable how much talent he has, um, I don't think all of it comes out primarily unless Alma's there. Um, because I think she does give him a lot of the confidence he needs to do these things. But also, it's undeniable, as we've already been talking about it, she knows this industry back and forth in terms of how to craft and construct a film. And this is the point where I ask you, a question that's kind of nagged at me as far back as I've known about Alma Revel and her contributions to Hitchcock. What does it, how does the impression give to you for somebody who works that far behind the scenes in terms of history? Do you think that it um, unfairly relegates Alma Revel and kind of like compresses her role in history too much um, when we think about how film history kind of proceeded? Cause it's arguable that it's 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 sad that we have to talk about her as the woman behind the man, but it seems like she was much more than that and that it got compressed into a tidbit or a, a line like that. Yeah, I mean I think I think it's I'm always torn about her story because I I'm always like, Come on, girl, I want you to like I want you to be fierce and, and she is fierce, but I'm like I want her to 
be in the in the light, if you will. I want her to step forward and take the credit and have all the things written about her and recorded appropriately. And and sometimes I I, I recognize that it was of her own choosing that she that she had the career that she did and that things did go sort of unrecorded. And I think that, and so it's like where, where I'm like, oh, I want her to have all this credit. I want her to be known. I want her to take the glory that she should have. I also wonder like, you know, if she were alive today, like, would she do it all over again differently or would it be the same? And I think it seems like, again, it seems like she was a very strong woman. She knew the industry. She knew what she wanted. I don't, you know, she wasn't soft-spoken. She always told Hitchcock, like, very directly and bluntly what she thought about the work, um, which resulted often in him making choices. Like, there's a really funny um, story that I, I read that was whenever they screened Vertigo, Mm-hmm. Uh, asked her what she thought and she's like you got to get rid of that scene you're you're gonna re-edit that scene right and he's like which scene and it was the one where they're running across the field and yeah. originally that scene had been edited so that it, she runs across the field you see the whole scene the whole clip but it was later edited so that there's this jump cut and that was really because Alma was like, I, I didn't like that. I didn't yeah. like how it looked. You need to edit that. <laughs> and so kind of all con in that regard, you know, she's with continuity, like yeah. known for continuity in the beginning. But in that regard, she's like, send continuity out the window because that doesn't work. And yeah. that's the kind of stuff where, I mean, she obviously didn't hold back. So she was a strong, outspoken woman. And so to me, that shows that it wasn't because she was pushed to the side. It wasn't because people told her, you know, you can't do this. You shouldn't do this. You're a woman, whatever. It's really because she chose the path that she chose. And so as much as me, like being a feminist, I'm like, get in there, lady. Like, you know, get in there. But, you know, take take it, you know, have get all the credit. It's also, you know, it has to be said that that wasn't, that wasn't the way that, that she wanted things. And that doesn't make her, you know, talking about, you know, quote unquote, being a feminist, like that doesn't make her any less of a strong woman, any less of a feminist figure or leader. That's just her way. She chose it. And that's something to respect as well. And, and like, I love knowing that she just bluntly would say those kind of things to Hitchcock and that he would take that stuff to heart and immediately go change it. I mean, that, that speaks volumes about their relationship and their, their trust with one another. And that kind of creative relationship is very rare and very hard to come by. And that to me is kind of a really inspiring part of um, the work that they, they built together. It was more about what was going on between the two of them, that they were able to create such works of art that still withstand the test of time today and always will. Um, they did that together and they did that because of the trust and the relationship that they built with each other. And they did that because, you know, they trusted each other's um, skills and 
experience and values and opinions, like they trusted each other 100%. And that is really how they were able to work together to create these timeless films. Yes. And I, and, and the, the, the quickness at which that film was edited um, after that suggestion was made is, is no short of a, you know, of a superhero feat within that. And, you know, and I, it speaks to everyone else also, you know, I mean, it speaks to Hitchcock fighting for Alma's opinion. And I think it also speaks to, at the end of the day, the power that she had, not only over Hitchcock, but over the industry as, as a leader herself, that she could mm-hmm. make a comment like that and that it would be turned around in the edit as quickly as it was. Arguably, like if you were going to, if we're going to use mafia terms, she's the consigliere of the Hitchcock <laughs> dynasty. Um, and, and which again makes her so cool. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, there are other contributions she makes across the board. Like one of my favorites that we talked about on the series when I, um, when we did our to catch a thief episode is that she is responsible for the intercutting, um, uh, between Cary Grant and Grace Kelly driving, um, and the cops following them at the same time. Originally the scene was wrote out as a straight up chase, uh, or a straight up just flat out conversation piece. And she was the one who suggested, like, you need to insert things in the middle of this scene to keep the momentum and the tension going. Because this is the scene where, yeah, it's the scene where Grace Kelly reveals to um, uh, Cary Grant, look, I know you're the cat. And he goes, what? But, um, you know, that that's the kind of contribution she makes. She's, she's able to look at the script and go like. Uh-uh. You know, like you gotta, you gotta do something with this shit, <laughs> like please. Um, and she's a storyteller. She's an artist. She yeah. knew her stuff, and that's what, um, that's what's really inspiring about her. I, I just, I love. Once I did learn about her, I, you know, it's one of those things where it's like you can't get enough because she's just so inspiring. Yeah, and this actually leads us to um, her contributions to Psycho, which. Um, Psycho's my favorite Hitchcock movie, and it's one of my top. It, yeah, and it's one of my top ten films of all time. I know you like it, and there's a lot that Alma does to make sure this movie even happens the way we see it today. Yeah. Um, now there is a there there are two films about Hitch uh, like biopics of Hitchcock, um, but the the main one that has gotten more widespread attention is Hitchcock, directed by Sasha Javarzi where um, uh, Alma is played by Helen Mirren in what I think is a fantastic performance. Now, not everything that they... Can't go wrong with Helen Yeah, and, and well, it's Helen Mirren. I mean, like, she's she's done everything. She was a queen. Didn't you remember? She was a queen. She is. Uh, <laughs> she in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> she won an Oscar for being a queen. Um, and, uh, but she... But the, the now I will say, though, that this Hitchcock movie, while it is entertaining... It is also, you know, it's 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 loosely, uh, it's loosely based to a certain extent in terms of the actual dramatic structure. There's no confirmation that she ever had an affair with Whitfield Cook that ever went to any remote distance. Um, but the key things that are known that, to her contributions are presented in this film. Um, but more importantly, to the history of Psycho. Um, so Joseph Stefano was the screenwriter on Psycho, and he wrote the draft um, after Hitchcock had gone through other writers and went, no, no, fuck you. Come in here, Joe. Write me a fucking movie. And he wrote the version that we get uh, of Psycho. 
But he said, but he, he told Stefano, like, look, the old lady got to see this first. Otherwise, you're fucking out. And he takes it to Alma. A couple days go by. He comes back to Joseph Stefano and he goes, Alma loved it. And then that was the go ahead. And that says that says a lot to where this legacy lies, because if she did not like the story, it did not happen. It would not happen. Not in not in a million years would it happen. She had to give the okay, because there's a part of me that feels that amongst the other things, not just knowing that she was intuitive on what would make a good story. It's also that Hitchcock was continually trying to impress her, um, which I feel is, is an interesting part of Hitchcock's uh, modus operandi in terms of the stories he does choose. Um, and, and I think that her even, her even agreeing that psycho would make a good movie sounds insane if you're talking in 1960, because this is the movie Psycho. It's a movie where a lady is stabbed in the shower in a fashion that would then inspire the slasher genre down the line. It's insane that this movie got made. More importantly, it's it's interesting that Alma was just like, oh, yeah, this is a ripping yarn. Like, <laughs> I don't see any problems you're ever going to have with this movie. Hitch. <laughs> like, um, but she did know what problems there would be. Um, she was tasked with helping to assemble the edit for this movie. Um, it's reported that she spotted where Janet Lee or like the nudity of either Janet Lee or the model, I would say the model that was in the shower for the shower scene where close-ups were done, where she would have spotted nudity, but that might just be an anecdote that pertains to the fact that the movie, um, was in trouble with the Sherlock office. Um, but more importantly, when she's editing this film, She's the one who noticed it. She's helping George Tomasini, the longtime editor of Hitchcock, do this. And she's the one who notices that post Janet Lee getting killed in the shower, as she's slumped over the side of the uh, of the shower, the, there's a long shot that goes from her eye and pulls back. And she's the one who notices going like, oh, Janet's fucking breathing. <laughs> you can see. Oh, my you, God. You can see her breathing now here's the thing in the final film you can still see it for like a second um the but the way she would have had to find that was going frame by frame by frame by frame this is not premiere pro where i can go arrow right. arrow button arrow button arrow button she's having to sift through it and go like yep that is definitely a throat moving <laughs> like this which is this, incredible just it, the attention to detail in that is is so what and dedication too and that that's the one where basically in that shot just after you see a little bit of breathing they cut back to the shower head before they continue the shot when it then goes away from marion to the bed with the money on it then to the window and then you hear mother oh god mother blood blood that's that's what they kind of use to cover it up so like that this is an example of her editing skills being like no 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 gotta fix this shit like, got to fucking do it. Right. Um, okay. But if there's an on-the-surface contribution Alma makes to the film, it's by it's by using the phrase, Hitch, just do it. Um, or watch it and see if you like it. So Bernard Herrmann, uh, composer for Psycho, amongst many other Hitchcock films before, um, uh, the, uh, before Torn Curtain debacle, um, and he had written the score for Psycho, uh, Hitchcock, by the way, initially wanted a jazz score for that movie, and I'm like, I'm really glad that cooler heads prevailed on that one. Um, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to 
trying to imagine that now, and I'm like, I, I don't know that it would work. But no, no, think about, think about it, think about it, Bernie. We could have Miles Davis come in as a guest. <laughs> it would be fucking cool. Um, but no, because no. I wouldn't ever like re-edit it to like a jazz score to see what <laughs> would happen. No, but I'm tempted to do it now because we're in quarantine and I have nothing else to do. <laughs> I think you need to because that's like I just feel like that needs to happen. There's, there's Gus or uh, what was it? It's Steven Soderbergh did something with the Psycho remake um, by sh- comparing it shot for shot and like doing a side by side or whatnot. I think I need to make this my silly project <laughs> to, to give it the jazz score. I have to cue it correctly. But regardless, though, he writes the score. He goes, no, 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 we're gonna do fucking strings hitch. And he's like, ah, oh, boo. But he. They get to the shower scene, though. Hitchcock wanted it to be silent. Now, this isn't unheard of because other murder scenes he had had prior, he would use silence because he wouldn't want... Initially, he does not want the music to dictate what the viewer should be feeling. Now, in the case of this, we know what the cue is. This is a cue that is known throughout human history as anytime you refer to somebody who's psychotic, you go, ree, ree, ree. Um, and the it seems like there's a fight within this going like, no, 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 no. This is going to be fucking stupid. If you just have these fucking strings playing out and whatnot. not. And Alma's the one who goes hitch, watch the movie with the music. See what you think. Well, I'm glad that she did. I've yeah. heard that story too. And I was always like, it, that is like one of, if not the most iconic Hitchcock scene moment, whatever you want to call it. And it, like, she was behind that. Yeah, and I think she, that that alone speaks to their work together and her influence and, and her intuitiveness. And it's interesting that um, years down the line, when Hitchcock's talking to other interviewers like Truffaut and Bogdanovich, he he refers to Psycho as a comedy, which is not on which is not untrue. If you watch it with that mindset, it is hilarious. Um, but. He um, because his his argument is it's like, well, it's not supposed to be taken too seriously. But what's interesting is, is that she's the one who's noticing that kind of element and being like, well, if it's over the top, give us an over the top score in that moment. Make double down on your words. <laughs> like, and so within that, she's responsible for one of the most iconic scenes in film history, having the elements that it has. Um, and. This psycho takes off. It's a huge hit. It then leads to Hitchcock working with Tippy Hedren on the birds and Marnie. Um, and this is part of where, you know, to talk about it. Um, we touched on a lot of this in the Marnie episode with Jack Hanley, but you know, obviously Hitchcock had his obsessions with his actors or with his actresses specifically. And the things that Tippy Hedren went through um, to, to the degrees that they did, are you know obviously unsettling and inexcusable um and and as far as hitchcock's uh or as far as alma's knowledge of what's going on or what she did it's not clear i have not been able to find any real information that solidly proves what she knows and doesn't know but what is clear is is that there's a certain point where hitchcock stops that behavior entirely and um now you know, in talking of the legacy of Alma Rebel, you know, the she's not responsible for his individual actions. So it's not something that I'm going to lay at her feet. But I do want to bring it up because it is part of that conversation. Um, you know, and as we're 
as we're going through the learning phases that we need to go through, like I certainly have to go through my learning phases in it because I lived in an ignorant cloud for years and just learning about it and just seeing how it relates to things, um, it proves important and it proves that there are many dimensions to many people within that and that these conversations are never easy. But as we, but as we, and you know, I, at the end of the day, I'm not going to tarnish Alma Revel's legacy with an unconf with not confirming what her knowledge base was for these exact actions. Um, and, but that, but that leads to a certain point. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say this leads almost to like a present day, I think, issue that <laughs> we have is that there's, um, gosh, not to bring up another 2020 buzz phrase, but I feel like this, everyone's kind of recognizing that cancel culture is problematic. And I feel like, I feel like maybe like a couple of years ago, I'd seen an article that kind of resurfaced about Hitchcock's like um, treatment of the actress and the birds and that, and it was in line with a lot of kind of these other discussions of, of present day male directors mistreating their female stars and things like that. And, and and those trying to like tarnish their their legacies, tarnish the work that they did, and um, you know I, I'm I'm certainly torn torn about this in a lot of ways, but I also think that what you said about like you've had to learn as well, I've had to learn different things. We've all had to learn and grow as people. It's like you have to give people an opportunity to to learn and grow and change and. Yeah. Um, this is a different tangent that might not even have to do with Hitchcock, but you know, it's like we, I think we're ha coming to the realization today in our present day that you can't just cancel somebody or cancel an entire body of work just because of one action without waiting for that person to have a reaction. Yeah. Um, I yeah. don't know. Yeah, no, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And then there's, and there's the element that we discussed with, I think you're familiar with Jack Hanley um, when you were still in Colorado. Um, he um, he and I talked for close to two and a half hours about Marnie. And and I think that with Hitchcock's legacy, Mar Marnie's the, the one that has the most problems and everything else seems to be primarily relegated to like one or two issues on set. Um, the birds comes closest to being an issue. But regardless, the idea of the legacy being erased is ridiculous because as we as we've seen with the uh with the history books that we have written by the men <laughs> um you're never going to get rid of hitchcock's name entirely so that, that would be impossible right, right. Um, i mean again I, this is this is a hard thing for me because as you know i think on a personal level like i am very um outspoken about you know just violence against women, sexual assault, et cetera. And I know that that was, you know, something that was, that happened on, on that set. And, you know, I don't want to gloss over that. And I don't want to, especially having this discussion about women in Hollywood. I think that that is a huge and pervasive issue still today. Um, that obviously, you know, the, I mean, the Me Too movement really, you know, came, rose out of a lot of the things happening in Hollywood. Um, so I don't want to gloss over it and I don't want to make it seem like I am 
dismissing a powerful figure in Hollywood being Hitchcock because of, you know, his legacy. I think that that happens a lot. And I think that's unfortunate. I think it's actually important that it is is talked about and that it is not glossed over because that is precisely how we learn from something. That is precisely how we say we're not going to do something like that, you know, again. So I, I think that that's actually a very important part of Hitchcock's legacy too, because as it should be, it should be a learning moment. And I'm hoping that it was a learning moment for him. I'm hoping it was a learning moment for everyone who was involved um, in whatever capacity they were involved. And I'm hoping that it can be a learning moment for, you know, students of Hitchcock today. Yeah. And it's, and it's been my own reckoning point with the film. Um, And also, you know, what do I learn from it and what do I take away from it? And, um, and it's, it, it is clear that if the very least um, Hitchcock's career at the point of Marnie, uh, takes a different turn because the studios um, tell him like no more star, no more star projects, nothing like that. You are, you are here to make entertaining movies for us. And Hitchcock and Alma still work together, like with Alma in a more uh, advisory capacity um, on the on the films that he would do afterwards, which are Torn, Torn Curtain, Topaz, Frenzy, and then Family Plot. But this is where Alma's story becomes um a little more sad is because she um prior to psycho even um during uh the makings of vertigo she was diagnosed and then recovered from cancer um she had also um at this point post marnie has a stroke um and she has actually more than one stroke and so her her abilities are kind of diminishing um she uh with 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 the discussion that we had earlier about them being tethered in terms of the 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 output of Hitchcock, there's a point um, at Family Plot where she is very limited interactions on set, whereas she would normally be in, involved in nearly every like aspect of helping him out. And as will as we as Phil and as Phil Vecchio and I discussed in the Family Plot episode, it's very clear that Hitchcock is starting to become aware with the term that his his career is also kind of winding down because his abilities are diminishing but also if alma's not there it's not fun for him anymore right right yeah and so so about that connection yeah exactly and so that that's part of i'd imagine that's part of what leads hitchcock to tell tell lou wasserman i'm i'm out I, i can't do it anymore they were working on the short night, um, which was an adaptation that, um, of a, of a spy story that they were planning. And then he just kind of, you know, closes the book and says, I'm going home. He leaves his bungalow. He never comes back. Hitchcock passes away in 1980. Alma joins him two years later. Um, and I'll bring up the article, uh, that has become very important in Alma Revel being recognized. Uh, Charles Champlin, who wrote for the L.A. Times, wrote um, an obituary for her. And I'm not going to go through the whole thing, although I will uh, try to let people know where they can find a copy of it through this thing called the Hitchcock, the Hitchcock Zone dot wiki. <laughs> um, but the uh, basically throughout this article, he gives her the credit that she had been kind of shying away from. Um, and amongst them is discussing, obviously, where they met and how they worked on woman to woman, um, working on the pleasure garden, working on the lodger, 
um, and then basically going through like the different screenplays that she had a direct uh, direct uh, influence and contribution to um, where she's credited on screen. They make it clear that Stage Fright's her last credited one, um, and it's un- and it says in the article, but it's uh, it's it's clear to know that those who knew him that the creative partnership kept going. Um, and then he addresses um, that in 1979, prior to his death, uh, Hitchcock received the American Film Institute's Lifetime Achievement Award, and within that, um, he made a grand effort uh, to. <laughs> Uh, let people know who was responsible because the only person he thanks in his speech is Alma Revel. And uh, he, he... It's a beautiful it's a beautiful speech and a beautiful portion of the speech that goes to Alma. And yeah. I always just like get a little flutter in my heart when I when I read it. <laughs> yeah, I, and, and one of my favorite parts of the speech, I will say, is when he says like the finest cook <laughs> who has ever worked in a domestic kitchen because one of the things they liked to do together was cook. And she was a she cooking was a passion of hers, as according to not just Patricia, but also their granddaughter, his her granddaughter, Mary Stone, who's still living, um, that she loved cooking in the kitchen. And so like they that, you know, she made the meals that made made me the big boy I was today. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, you know, and this is when she passes away. It's it's in 1982, so the legacy of Alma Revel is kind of relegated to this article until, arguably, this is where I'm going to add in my own um, my own theories is that mainly the the knowledge of Alma Revel beyond film school and film geek circles starts coming out when the bonus features arrive for the Universal series of Hitchcock films in the late 90s. Uh, these are the these are the d- DVDs that basically exposed us to Hitchcock for the most part, unless you had VHS. Um, and within there, a, t- a treasure trove of special features like documentary. Psycho has the longest documentary, which is like a, close to 90 minutes. And that's where Alma Revel's name starts popping up for people like me and for for you and for everybody who's obsessed with the image of a bird attacking Tippi Hedren or Janet Lee getting stabbed in the shower. Like that's where you start learning about her name. Um and so that kind of leads us into this bigger discussion that I wanted to have um, with the, the the overall outlook of the industry as it was then and what it is today. Um, uh, to start off, I'm going to start by saying that my knowledge on this um, is stems from two places. One is ignorance. Um, I think the first time I really got a glimpse of it was learning about Oscar Michaud, the African-American director who made films on his own uh, on his own throughout without the studio system and distributed his films mainly to African-American circuits um, of theaters uh, back in the 30, 20s, 30s and 40s. And so that's where you start learning that the dam of history is starting to get broken down and you start learning these figures, um, which – by the way, I guess the credit would go to Spike Lee for helping me realize that there's this larger world out there. Um, but the key thing that I look at is that like, um, there's an actress from the golden age of Hollywood named Ida Lupino, who I, I, I adore. And I did not know she directed movies until two to three years ago. Uh, and that came from going to the Alamo Draft House when they were doing a series called Fierce uh, Fierce Woman, I believe it was called. But they showed 
a lot of Ida Lupino movies, and one of them was High Sierra, which is a film by John Huston or written by John Huston, starring Humphrey Bogart, where she's the love interest sort of in the movie. And that's when I heard uh, Steve Bissett, who uh, was at the Alamo Draft House at that point um, in Denver, basically explaining that the films that they were also going to be doing in the series were films that she directed. I'm like, say what? <laughs> I had no idea that Ida Lupino directed. And then you look into this legacy and she had directed films, um, whether through the major studios or on her own, where they're fierce noir movies that are available on Kino Lorber's collection sets. Um, so what I will ask you, Olivia, is that does obviously it's frustrating to know that these things are hidden from us um, in terms of learning from history. What is your impression about a lot of the articles, stories, documentaries like Alice Guy doc? What is it? How do you process that as a, uh, as a female in the industry who is trying to, not just make their name in whatever capacity it might be, but also as a creative. Because to me, if I, I'd have to imagine if I were put in that position, I'd be furious. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's definitely, it's definitely challenging. I mean, I think we're in this, we're in, I mean, this industry is rugged um, in a lot of ways to, you know, everyone who's involved and, you know, you really do, the people who stick with it are, um, you know, are in it for the love of it in a lot of ways, um, because it is certainly not glamorous for all of the glam that, that, you know, that people see from Hollywood. It's, it's definitely not glamorous and it's a lot of hard work and a lot of long hours and a lot of sacrifices. And, um, I think that on top of that as well, like, you know, women sacrifice a lot um, to be in this industry. And it's, it's always inspiring to me to, when I meet women in this industry, because they're some of the like, just most powerful, strong, smart people that I've met um, to date and are doing incredible things and just like changing the industry too um, in so many ways and in so many unsung ways too. I mean, a lot of these um, women and, um, you know, people of color that are in this industry that maybe are you know, not their work isn't, isn't in the, um, I don't know what I'm trying to say. Like it, you know, isn't in the mainstream yet. They're, they're doing things that are changing the game. Mm -hmm. And that to me is what I want to focus on more because, and, and what I want to encourage other people to do is, is like, look, look deeper. Um, there's a lot of content nowadays um, it's definitely a content boom, but there's so many places where you can find these like unique new voices. Um, and I say new, but like a lot of these people aren't new. There's, there's a lot of these people have been around for a significant amount of time, but they're just 
like it said, there's they're just not in the mainstream. Kelly Reichardt is a big example of that because Kelly Reichardt hasn't really gotten much attention until the pandemic shut down First Cow. <laughs> right, exactly. And, and, and that's the thing that's like fascinating is when you kind of dig into like, I just encourage people to like dig into the the past work of people that you like, that you like, you know, or even of these, what seems to be these like breakout films, dig into the work that they're, they're doing um, and the work that they did before, because you'll, you'll just be amazed. I mean, I'm definitely, I'm definitely biased on this because of um, just the amount of graciousness and, um, mentorship that she gave me early on in my career but um Chinoye Chuku is like incredible and she's changing the game in this industry right now um she is incredibly inspiring like her her film Clemency which won um the grand jury prize for Sundance um last year 2019 yeah 2019 um is just like earth shattering it is, I've never had such a visceral reaction in a movie theater when I saw that film. Um, I just don't have, I don't have any words to describe how that film made me react. And she, the, the backstory of like the work that she put into making that film and writing that script is like, she actually stepped into the lives of incarcerated women and the, the the wardens that work with them and like that is such a laborious like emotionally heavy thing to put yourself through like especially as a black woman I feel and she she did that for many years and she got heavily involved in some cases and 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 actually worked tirelessly to to get women who were falsely imprisoned out um and, and like, to me, that is like, people aren't doing that. Like people aren't putting themselves into these like emotional pretzels <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to get to this space where they can just like leave it all on the, on the screen, you know? And, yeah. you know, I, I mean, again, I, I'm biased because she's an, she's an alum of my same university. Um, I, I did my first projects that I ever worked on in this industry were alongside her and, or or led by her, I should say. And I I just have an incredible admiration for her. Um, But also like in an unbiased way, I mean, this film is, is groundbreaking. And if you haven't seen it, like I also, I promise that I'm not getting paid for this. I also just genuinely like think that this movie is amazing. Um, And it says so much that, in, in so little words, like speaking of silent film, like there's, there's not a lot of dialogue in this film. Um, but yeah, I highly recommend it, but it's, it's women like her in this industry that are like changing the game that are, are doing things like their own way. Like she's always like done things her own way. And she's never like asked permission really. Like she's never, she's never let anything hold her back. And that was the, the that's the biggest thing about her and these other women that I look up to in the industry that just like is remarkable and inspiring to me and like I sit here and I'm just like ah, like I wish you know I wish that they were they were getting the 
attention and the awards that they deserve. I, I mean, in a lot of ways, they are getting recognition, but I, I just think they they deserve so much more. And um, there's just no comparison to the work that's being done. It's just so unique. And we need more voices like that. We need to make space for voices that we haven't made space for before because that's where you that's where you get change, you know? And I, I think we're in this period with an industry, you know, with the pandemic where we're having change forced upon us. And it's sort of been coming for a long time because of, you know, a lot of these factors that we've talked about, but, but also, be, you know, because of the gender disparity, because of the um, lack of diversity, you know, like because of these things and because we're getting closer and closer to, to pushing that to the surface, those, those inequalities and inequities to the surface, like we already before this pandemic were starting to see change. And I think that when, when something like, you know, this pandemic happens, there's, it's almost like I'm hoping, I'm hoping that it's going to be like the, the waterfall that we all topple over that, that causes us to land in this new pool of change and new voices and just new filmmaking styles. And that we, we come out of this like a new, like a fresh industry, because I think that it's time to shake things up. And I think that it's time for new people to be heard. And like women looking back at women like Alma, looking back at women through history within this industry who have set the stage for, for the, the people working today. You know, when you talked about Olivia de Havilland negotiating her contract, you know, just a few years ago, that, that same thing, that same topic came up when um, I I remember Jennifer Lawrence, I think talked about it. There was a bunch of, a bunch of female, um, actresses that started talking about like we need to be transparent with each other about what we're making so that we can you know make the same amount or more we need to make the amount that we deserve and that you know like that like you said like that kind of started with with somebody like Olivia de Havilland and there's all these things that we need like it's time to bring women's history women's history within Hollywood to the forefront because we there were people working on these things long before us and there's ways that we can learn from them and um be inspired by them and 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 the last thing I'll say is that because I know I'm kind of on a tangent but like the last thing I'll say is that like the biggest the biggest thing that we need to realize is that that our entertainment industry as a whole is almost like a mirror to our to our society and in fact it it actually like it's not only a mirror but it actually magnifies what's going on in our society good and bad and mm-hmm. that is such a powerful thing um and so when you hear about these like the inequalities the gender inequalities the lack of diversity the inequities within the industry it is speaking to a larger issue within our society and i think that we also see 
big changes come to the rest of our society when those changes come to our entertainment. Um, because it sets an example for the rest of us. Yeah. Um, I mean, for, for better or for worse, we live in a culture where like our celebrities and our cult, our pop culture, you know, is highly influential, um, especially now with like social media so strong. So using that power to influence is really important. And um, that's why, that's sometimes why I wish that Alma had taken more of a, a you know, front and center stage role. Um, but, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to fault her for that because everyone has their own path to things. But, um, right. you know, I appreciate that's something that I've always appreciated about Hitchcock, actually, is that he didn't ever let her stay in in behind him. He didn't ever let her stay in the shadows because he, of all people, wanted everyone to know how much of an impact, how intelligent and creative and sharp she was. He wanted people to know. And, and that's, I think, one of the, the greatest attributes of Hitchcock is that he was such a champion of this woman. And by virtue of that, many women. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And it's and and within that, we it actually is a good capper in a, in a lot of ways to or a postscript to when when Marshall and I talked about Young and Innocent, we kind of wrapped up sort of the overall assessment of uh, the roles that w women played in Hitchcock films in the respect of the actresses on screen and specifically the characters. And when I started the series, a big issue that I started seeing on the surface initially was like, well, it seems like obviously it's hard to say this is you know, like, like powerful women figures. But then when you start dissecting it, you realize there's a lot more in the, in the inner workings of it that, you know, not every, obviously not every character in every movie he makes is going to be perfect, but there are so many examples where Hitchcock is the forefront of putting those, those stronger women characters out to the forefront. Yeah. There, there is the, there is the side argument, the counter, the counter argument of like them being cool or like the cool blonde kind of thing. But there is like, there, there's an undeniable notion that like the thing that I've noticed that has been prevalent in a lot of Hitchcock movies is that women are much more astute and a lot more observant. And a lot of the men are kind of bumbling. And it's interesting that especially when especially when you're dealing with younger, younger characters like he he he'll position like the the women are much more, you know, observant and smart and intelligent and the men are acting like men. And it's, and and it's very very fascinating to see how early he was doing that amongst the other motifs and themes that he was working with that you really weren't allowed to talk about today or back then that you could talk about today. Um and I I think that it's important to kind of end this overall discussion with two little pieces. Um, one's from the McCall's article. Um, and uh, it, it, this is it. When this was written in 1956, Al, Hitchcock is writing, um, uh, uh, writing basically of the time and the era, but there are key things in it is that Alma thinks it's a shame. I've been typed as a mere maker of suspense and murder movies, but I'm afraid to risk too offbeat a movie. People wouldn't like it because I did it. It wasn't a good Hitchcock, the critics would say. And in many ways, it's a nuisance having a wife who knows all this but won't talk. 
The inherent danger is that the husband will never be talked about in public. It, it, in fact, eventually imposes upon him the egotistic need to write about himself. I'm sure I prefer that per, prefer it that way. I suspect Alma knows that too. <laughs> so he's he's fully aware of where that that line of power lies. But the bigger one uh, that I want to read from is actually from the article that uh, came from uh, Columbia Columbia.edu. Um, in their Women's Film Pioneers Project. This is not a a piece of biographical information. This is a credit report. And this is basically would be the listing of a filmography. And this is the phrase that it says, and this is the one that concerns me the most and why um, uh, things that need to become aware of now are of vital importance. It is difficult to compile a complete list of the films that Revel worked on in the late 1910s and early 1920s due to the uncredited nature of the roles that she filled. The titles given here do not constitute her entire oeuvre, and while further research could flesh this list out, the construction of an exhausted filmography, particularly the ones which cover her time at Twickenham, may be an impossible goal. Um, we, the, the, the biggest thing that I, if I could impart any piece of, advice to anybody listening to this show who has an influence to do things in, of such matters. Um, I'm tired of not being able to find information on these figures of the past without having to dig into a university library that I have no access to. Um, these are things that are important to know to the mainstream, but most, but most importantly, it is, it is quite, literally a shame that you can't in this article about women Pi film pioneers project. Now keep in mind, they have other complete listings for other filmmakers, but this in particular is important to try to compile what we can. If the records do not exist, it is important then for us in the future to start keeping these records more intactfully, because I would like to see my nephew um, who is too, uh, too in change now, grow up to be able to learn more about female filmmakers uh, or men filmmakers, whoever, uh, and learn their history and learn what they went through adversity wise or whatever the case may be to get where they are as artists. Um, unless he's into football, in which case I can't do anything about that. But, but you know, like I, I want that information readily available, not just for dorks like me who sit in their basement during quarantine. I really want this to be available to other people. It's quite a shame when, uh, you see very few podcasts um, or or research documentaries being made about these figures in history. Um, and to, you know, uh, you must remember this uh, along with Secret History of Hollywood are two shows that do their do the utmost duty of addressing and delivering these stories. But it's a shame when one of the third options is my dorky ass having to tell you people to get your shit together. So and you are a great resource. <laughs> I do my best. Um, but Olivia, I want to thank you for taking the time from your schedule to talk about Alma's legacy, to talk about celebrating her life, her achievements and her and her many different angles as a person, because obviously we we as film geeks know who Alma is. I'd like to have more people know who she is. Because I think out of any, if if it doesn't convince you what we've just talked about, think about it this way: Hitchcock would want you to know who Alma Rebel is, and above anybody else regarding this show, 
Hitchcock's voice might be the most important realm in this conversation because he's the one who would not want you to forget his dear beloved Alma. And I think that that, that, that the fact that you came down and took your time, took the time to sit down and talk about not just what she meant, but also what it will mean going forward is an invaluable asset that this show absolutely needed. Um, and I, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. I mean, like I said, she's really inspiring to me. The more I've, it took me a long time to get around to learning about her, unfortunately, but by the time I did, she's just really inspired me. And I hope that she inspires other people. I mean, I certainly wanted to come on this, not only to talk about her, but to talk about all the women that are doing beautiful things in this industry. I mean, like I've said numerous times, all the people that mentored me, that helped me get my start and continue in this career are women. Um, mm -hmm. Without those women, I wouldn't be doing what I do and I wouldn't be the outspoken, hardworking person that I am. Um, not to do my own horn, but like, I wouldn't be who I am today without these women. And so I am really grateful for them. And I think what's the coolest part about Alma's story is that, you know, like me not being who I am without those women, I don't think Hitchcock would be who he was without Alma. And so I think everyone should dig deep into, into her story, um, you know, just as much as they want to dig into Hitchcock. She's incredible. So thank you for allowing me to to talk with her about uh, with you today and and for also, you know, asking me to dig deeper too into her story. I, it caused me to to go down a wormhole and I'm, I'm really grateful for it. So thank you so much. Well, not a problem. And um, and it's true. It's Hitch talking again. I, I, I would not be who I was without the extra set of hands that created that Hitchcockian touch that everybody's uh, so aware of. That that Charles Champlin fellow was a very astute writer. I I read the I read his obituary while Alma and I were up in heaven having tea. You know, like this is just a lovely, lovely sight for both of us. Now we're gonna go to uh, a, a nightclub and see some kind of fun little show up there. Uh, maybe it's like Monty Python and the Meaning of Life. I don't fucking know. Um, but so thank you again for doing this. This is going to wrap up this episode of the Shamley Silhouette. You can find more episodes of the Shamley Silhouette at realnerdspodcast.com. We are getting ever closer to that final episode with Adam Roche from the Secret History of Hollywood that was pre recorded in March before I realized that the world was fucking ending. Um, and uh, you will notice uh, throughout time as the series ends and the supplemental episodes might come out and trickle out here and there that the articles might be returning. I'm figuring out a way to do that um, if possible. Um, I will say that the writing of articles has been relegated to me figuring out a different path for the next series. Um, but uh, And then on the next episode, we are at episode 24, the penultimate episode of this series. Uh, and we will be having as our guest, Phil Vecchio in a conversation that I pre-recorded in June, uh, where you will get to hear us talk about the farmer's wife, um, Champagne, uh, and the movie Family Plot, which uh, was the ultimate finale to Hitchcock's career. Um, but until next time, good night. <laughs>